everybody. Welcome to Journal Chess Webinar Journal Club for June of 2022. We'll be today talking about perceptions of life support and advanced care planning during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a very exciting paper. And on behalf of the journal, I am excited here to have our authors, Vishal Patel and Dr. Gregory Wallingford with us today. My name is Viren. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician. And um, one of my areas of interest has been uh, sort of evaluating uh, online conversations and uh, socials as we call them. So I'm very excited to speak with both Vishal and Gregory. Personally, I have no conflicts of interest with regards to this uh, Journal Club webinar today. So Vishal, do you wanna introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, Vishal, uh, I'm a student at Dell Medical School right now in Austin, Texas. Um, I went to UT for undergrad and I actually did a little bit of, in addition to biology, I did some philosophy. Um, that's really where, where a lot of my interests in medical ethics comes from and a little bit about where, um, where all, all of this, this research question actually stems from. So, and I have no conflicts of interest. Dr. Wallingford. Hey everyone, <clears throat> my name is Greg Wallingford. I am an emergency medicine turned palliative care physician. <clears throat> Uh, so I actually was in the pandemic as both uh, emergency med and as palliative care. So I got both ends of the stick. Um, and I'm an assistant professor and uh, palliative care physician at Dell Medical School. Um, I also have an interest in leadership um, and some of the stuff we're doing here around how do you use big data um, to make big insights. Well, both of you, welcome. And Dr. Wallingford, thank you for your service during the pandemic. I think we probably don't acknowledge it enough, and we should. All right, so let's delve into it. So the study, like I said, is dealing with perceptions um, in the online space regarding life support and advanced care planning. So why don't I just uh, get you started by asking, how did you guys and where did you guys extract this data from, and how did you review it uh, for the purposes of your study? Yeah, so um, just a little bit of background on, you know, how, how we actually came up with this research question um, is, I mean, we really just, my personal experience with this is I, I was just seeing so many stories on, on you know, news sources, um, on social media, um, just everywhere about mechanical ventilation, and ECMO, and all these new, new terms that I'd never seen before on that platform. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, I wonder how much people are actually talking about this. Um, I wanted to quantify it. Um, so that's really where the research question of, you know, how did conversations about advanced care planning and life support change um, during the pandemic? That's where it sort of um, came from. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the second half of this is, is um, yeah, while, while I saw a lot of topic, uh, a lot of conversation about life support, I didn't really see that much about um, advanced care planning or advanced directives in general. And, and you know, my, my sort of philosophical um, background, sort of my ethics background sort of ate at me and was like, huh, I, I wonder if people are talking about this just as much because it is just as important. Um, and that those two sort of met and uh, that's where the research question came from. Um, and and so, so based on that research question, then um, we chose specific keywords with which we could search Twitter. So um, Twitter has an application programming interface, which you may be familiar with, Dr. Call, um, uh, Twitter's API. And so what you can do is you can, you can search 
for historic tweets, right? There's, there's no real time limit for how far you can go back. Um, and for researchers, there's actually a very, there's not really a big limit for how many tweets you can pull. Um, so we chose keywords related to a research question like um, mechanical ventilation, ECMO, um, you know, um, advanced care planning, DNR, DNI, and then variations of, of those words, right? Like do not resuscitate spelled out, do not intubate spelled out, and all, all possible uh, dictionary variations. And we searched for, for those words. And so all tweets containing those search terms were, were collected. Um, and in total, it was something like 250,000 tweets that we collected by 100,000 unique users. Um, and yeah, and that, that's sort of the data extraction process. Um, Fair enough. So two sides of the coin, there's life-saving interventions or what we can at least garner out of historical conversations online and uh, advanced care planning, sort of, you know, uh, like I said, two sides of the coin. So just for audience purposes, you guys define life-saving or search for life-saving interventions when you were looking for, say, ventilators or dialysis or ECMO, whereas advanced care planning as a separate kind of category was DNR, DNI, end-of-life care, those kind of search terminologies. Okay, great. So on one side is LSI, life-saving interventions. Other side is uh, advanced care planning. So how did the conversations in the course of the pandemic, and also could you clarify what that course time period of search was, how did they evolve for both those topics? Uh, so it's, and actually maybe even before, before moving on, if, uh, if Dr. Wallingford, if you wanna just talk about the, the difference between those conceptually, between advanced care planning and life-sustaining interventions, just because it, it sort of sets the stage, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... I think me being an ER doctor and not as trained in this, this was new information to me in palliative care and probably to many listeners in Palm Crit, um, <clears throat> that advanced care planning is really a process. So eliciting values and then over time, matching those values to what medically you're being offered to make sure that your values are being met by the medical treatments you're getting. So advanced care planning can be as simple as talking about things you love. It can be as uh, discreet though, as saying, I don't want CPR in this particular case. And so um, advanced care planning is broad, covers a lot of things. Um, and then life-sustaining interventions are very discreet, you know, CPR, dialysis, ventilation. Um, and so I think uh, to go back just a little bit, I know it's veering slightly off course. Um, I think one of the really interesting things is because this is a process, we have to meet people with where they are in that process when we're doing this kind of work. And so understanding where people are has a huge impact on how I start a conversation. And I think part of this whole study is that, what are people talking about? How are they talking about it? Because that's how they're gonna walk in the hospital is what they heard from their friends, what they heard on the news, and then what conversations they've had. Um, so this does give us a little bit of insight into an entry point to start those conversations as productively, I think, as we can. Um, and so, yeah, advanced care planning can cover things like LSIs, but in the ideal world, I think they would be connected that when you're talking about advanced care planning, uh, life-sustaining interventions are part of that, but not the only part of it. And we often, I think, think of them as a little bit separate that we're talking about dialysis or we're talking about CPR, we must be talking about advanced care planning. Um, so all that to say that um, 
I'll, I'll hand it over to Vishal to interpret some of this information, but there are different terms that are closely related. Yeah, so if you look at the, uh, so the x-axis here is just time. And so we collected tweets uh, about one year before and about one year after the, uh, the, um, the onset of the pandemic, which is around March 2020 is when it was defined. So, um, so, so the x-axis defines time. And then the, I guess it's actually easiest to start with the bottommost panel, which is COVID deaths. Uh, global COVID deaths. And so you see that peak essentially in the middle of the graph. Um, and that corresponds to the peaks in, in the top panel, in the middle panel. So uh, the top panel is just those individual search terms, right? Um, not grouped by LSI or advanced care planning, just, just the raw terms. And you see that um, if we start with um, DNR, DNI in red, uh, actually, you know, all of these tweets, except for the one in, in gray, CPR, uh, spike and, and uh, right alongside that that COVID peak, um, and and yeah, so so I, I think th that is just showing how much more people are talking about these individual search terms um, after the pandemic when compared to before. There are almost no conversations about you know things like advanced directives or ECMO before, and so. Um, that's sort of what that is showing. And then the middle uh, panel is just showing when you do group these by the two sort of uh, theoretical frameworks that we have, advanced care planning and life-sustaining interventions, that throughout the entire time period, uh, LSIs are talked about more frequently um, and, and uh, then advanced care planning. Uh, even when you consider that spike, um, there's still almost double the number of conversations about LSIs than there are about advanced care planning. I think one really remarkable thing is <clears throat> this is not one, but two orders of magnitude that the number of tweets are increasing. So if you just look at um, yellow mechanical <coughs> ventilation, it's around 10 tweets a day prior to the pandemic starting. Then you hit March where this, you can kind of line up on this graph, the big peak, and it's about a thousand. Um, so it's a marked increase in public discussion around mechanical ventilation. And I think, again, like I said, because this is a process and because people take in whatever they've talked about before to when they come into the hospital, um, this public discourse probably has a, you know, now a hundredfold more increased um, impact on what people are thinking about as they first start these conversations. Um, and then um, you can see too that it, the, it falls off after that initial March peak, but it's very much a, a stair step. So it goes from about 10 tweets a day to about a hundred um, tweets per day. So it's still up 10 X and sustained there for many, many months for over a year, really. Yeah, I was actually, uh, you partially stole my thunder of intelligence because I was going to ask, you know, so did we ever settle down? And it's a little bit of a prophetic question because, you know, the coverage and the information deluge didn't stop. So you would anticipate that it wouldn't stop. Though surprisingly, the conversations around CPR is that advanced directives around advanced directives looks like did start settling down overall, which I'm sure it's hard to read into, but they did, which mm -hmm. was interesting. Okay. So um, let's talk about, uh, you know, who are these people who are having these conversations, right? So for my own area of research, just acting as the 
scientific liaison now changing my gears over from being a moderator, right? So our research group, we studied what we defined as sociomes, you know, the way you've defined your different users. Uh, and the idea of the sociomes was, okay, can we understand who are these people who are having these conversations? So tell us about that. Who are the users? Um, and uh, what did you find about the users having these conversations? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. We're going to say something. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the users, we actually, just to define how we actually identified them, uh, we used uh, key terms, again, to identify these users. So um, for, for example, for organizations, uh, if a, an, a user had a, a search a word like the New York Times or CNN or uh, any sort of organizational name like news network, um, those counted as organizational search terms. Um, same for clinicians, right? Some, something said like urologist um, in, in, a, in a user's biography, they were put into the clinician category. Um, for influencers, it was a little different because uh, influencers are defined, uh, they're defined differently everywhere, but we, we chose some of the, uh, we, we chose our definition based off of prior literature where either uh, a verified Twitter account or a Twitter account with over a hundred thousand followers counted as an influencer. Um, All right. So then here in the top panel, you see that uh, a majority of users are just individuals. So they didn't fall into any of the other buckets. Um, and then the uh, smallest group are actually influencers. You can't even really see them in the x-axis. They make up less than, I don't know, 10th or 20th of the population. Um, and most users tweeted uh, more about, more users tweeted about life support than about advanced care planning. Um, then when you look at the second panel, um, you see sort of a very stark contrast here. So um, while influencers have a very small amount of users, they have, you know, an order of magnitude, uh, yeah, an order of magnitude more impressions than any of the other users, right? Uh, so, so it looks uh, that that inset over there is actually zooming in to to the uh, x-axis, where all the other, yeah, the, all all the other groups are sort of smushed yeah. into the x-axis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, if my math is correct, I would say it's probably like at least ten times more, right? Yeah. So it's order of one to ten, right? So interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess which goes with the territory of, I suppose, being influences. But a few clarifications. Did you ever run into accounts as you were sort of having, you used, if I'm not correct, machine learning process to do this, correct? To categorize them? Uh, yes. Uh, not this aspect of it. The, the, the category, uh, the machine learning part was for, uh, um, for other aspects. Uh, you know, we predicted the gender um, of the account, we predicted the age group, and then that was also for the content analysis. So this, yeah, this was done manually. Uh, well, it wasn't done manually. It was done using uh, search terms. So it was like search parts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the reason I'm asking is because did you ever run into accounts that you just couldn't categorize? Yes. Yes, and that was actually one of the suggestions we got from a reviewer um, to validate this process of. Uh, identifying accounts. And yeah. so, so uh, th for, for the most part, if we couldn't identify a user as a clinician or an organization, like we, you know, our search terms were not 100% accurate to that. Um, they just fell into the individual category. That was sort of the other, in, in, uh, other group, right? 
Um, but uh, we actually did end up identifying specific types of clinicians, right? Like critical care physicians. That was one of the the, uh, the types. Uh, we, we identified specific types of organizations, right? News yeah. organization versus et cetera, versus et cetera. And that's in the supplementary uh, material, I believe. I don't think it's on this table. Well, ask and you shall receive. So tell me about your users. Let's talk a little bit about their demographics because you were saying how you already looked into their characteristics. So tell us more about your users, Dick. Yeah. Uh, so, so like you said, we did use some machine learning um, here to predict these uh, these characteristics, and so that's why it's predicted sex, predicted age. Um, and, and this algorithm, what it does is it looks at um, it, it really it, it's validated for social media accounts. It was actually the creators of this algorithm um, made it and used it for Twitter, and they used um, they they used Twitter data in order to actually make the algorithm. So. Uh, the way it works is, you know, you have a training set and then a validation set. And so you, you feed into uh, the, the, the protocol or they fed into this protocol um, a bunch of accounts where they knew what the gender was, right? They said, okay, this account is for sure male. I know this in real life. Um, and then the, the, uh, the actual algorithm looks at the keywords in the profile. It looks at the name, the first name. Um, and then it also looks at the profile picture. And so um, based off of how it has processed the training set, it will try to predict what the, uh, the age is. Um, and here are results are really that uh, more males, um, or yeah, males are more likely to talk about life support and then younger individuals were more likely to talk about life support. Um, yeah, I don't know, Dr. Wallingford, if you wanna comment on, on that. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, it kind of makes sense that a younger population is more interested in more aggressive care. Um, and it, it kind of makes sense, uh, too, that um, an older population might have a little bit more conversation around advanced care planning because perhaps they or a family member um, have been part of that. <clears throat> um, the other thing I uh, thought was interesting is that... Um, Compared with uh, males, females uh, proportionally talked a little bit more about um, advanced care planning compared to life-sustaining interventions. Um, and I don't have a great explanation for that. Um, although one potential explanation is just, um, I think that uh, toughness is kind of like part of the way that some people define being male, and so perhaps doing more aggressive treatments, et cetera, is more socially acceptable in some groups and therefore tweeted about a little bit more. Not sure if it's true, it's a potential hypothesis. No, I think, I mean, that's the hard part sometimes, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in limitations, is because you're talking about exhibited behaviors. So, no, fair point. All right. Tell me about, uh, you know, who comprised in terms of your now these categories that you created of users, what was the distribution so that we have the stage step for going forward? Yeah, and uh, th this actually corresponds directly to the earlier uh, bar graph that we were looking at, the top panel of it, um, just showing how influencers um, or maybe the bottom panel, but, um, show, no, no, the top panel, that's right. Influencers talk more about uh, advanced care planning, or sorry, about life support than about advanced care planning. Yeah. Um, and actually, we, we had an interesting, we, we, we came across an interesting tweet uh, in our data set, and I, I don't know if you have that pulled up, 
Dr. Wallingford, um, if you wanted to talk about that influencer that we. Um, yeah, so um, this is right here. a related uh, segue, I promise. Um, so there was one influencer, um, I don't recall the name, but um, in India who posted something requesting a ventilator at a time when ventilators were scarce. And he had 9 million followers. So you can imagine how many people or eyeballs saw that tweet. Um, <clears throat> and my understanding is he got his family member the resources needed. Um, and so this goes and is a little bit related to this element of discrimination or health equity um, that's so important that people who have Twitter accounts that have tons and tons and tons of followers have access to resources that aren't available to the common person often, um, especially in a resource scarce type of situation. Um, so just a hypothesis here about why things like discrimination um, as a theme for the things that people tweeted about may have come up much is that it's, it becomes very clear that resources are not allocated completely equitably um, in something as simple as Twitter for someone who has 9 million followers who had all these leads immediately sort of posted versus someone who doesn't and doesn't know who to reach out to and doesn't have access to that kind of um, type of group. Yeah, especially more so during times of stress where there's already a significant information overload, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so I suppose I think this is a segue because we're talking about the impact of conversations, right? And part of the impact is how we feel about those conversations. And uh, traditionally, it's always hard to determine that, but you did conduct um, what's called a sentiment analysis for these tweets. So walk us through what a sentiment analysis is briefly, and then what was the what were the sentiments that uh, that sort of predominated um, the tweets related to the two uh, conversations? Yeah, so um, actually, it, it may be best to explain the sentiment analysis uh, with that next table because there's some examples of, of uh, the next. Let's see, I think table one. Hey, there we go. That one, table two. Um, so, so, so we had two. We had two sort of um, breakpoints in the analysis. We had a sentiment analysis and then a, a content or a topic analysis, right? So, so. Um, the, the sentiment analysis essentially uses um, uses a pre-established lexicon um, that, that has a bunch of words in it, essentially like a dictionary. Um, and those words are tied to a, a sentiment number, right? From extreme negative, negative one, to extreme positive, positive one sentiment. Um, and, and this dictionary has, you know, to give you an example, some, something like, um, um, like, negative one, right, would be like hate. And then along that continuum, it would be uh, dislike, then like, then love, right? So, so based off of the words that people are using, um, uh, the, the tweet itself would be assigned a, a, a cumulative sentiment number. And then we take all of the different um, tweets or, that are in a particular topic or group, and we just give, give the, the mean sentiment. Um, so for example, here, if you, if you look at... Um, if you look at the very first tweet right here, it says, please, for the love of God, you know, in all caps, establish an advanced directive, blah, blah, blah. 
And that has, uh, that group had a, had a pretty uh, positive sentiment um, versus if you look at the, I don't know, if you look at the discrimination category, you know, um, it, it's sort of talking about old, disabled, we, we have likely prevented any few deaths. Um, and, and so um, that has a, a negative sentiment, that, at least that group does. Um, so we can go back to, to, to that first figure if, if we just want to compare the sentiment then um, for, for the so, advance. Yeah. Sorry for really quick response. So just to, um, how do I say? So just to maybe put it this way, that this algorithm essentially is looking at a sentence and saying, this sounds broadly negative based on the composed words, on an average of the composed words, or it broadly sounds positive. And then exactly. you took the cumulative sentiment of each of these individual tweets to come up with this analysis. Is that fair? Yes, that's exactly right. And, and right. so, you know, as you said, since we're taking a cumulative um, of, all, of a lot of tweets, um, we're going to get a distribution. So you really have to compare the, the subtle differences between a distribution when you have so much data. So if you look at advanced care planning, you see it's uh, the, the median sentiment is about it's pretty close to neutral, but uh, you see that it's bimodal, right? So there's a huge peak um, in the positive area and a huge peak in the negative area. Um, while for life support, it's it's fairly unimodal, right? The, the, uh, the majority of the peak is in the positive. Um, and so that's just saying that, you know, more conversation about, um, conversations about advanced care planning had sort of two different sides to it, while those about life support were mostly skewed to the positive. And I think that kind of lines up with anecdotal experiences that we have. Like um, I was telling Vishal yesterday, I would not post on Twitter, for example, my mom got put on ECMO and she still passed away or something like that, that um, when you post publicly, you exhibit certain behaviors and you tend to want to I think often want to share positive experiences. Um, and so for something like life-sustaining treatments, I think it's easier to say this amazing thing happened um, when my parent, loved one, friend was put on life support than the opposite. Um, and I also think it lines up anecdotally that um, people have opinions about both life support and advanced care planning. They're not these purely cognitive discussions, they're personal. And so they feel like they should be bimodal in the way that people talk about them, either positively or negatively. Um, <clears throat> and very interestingly, because most people have not had much exposure to life-sustaining treatments in terms of, I think, education, conversation, et cetera, the fact that it is perceived so positively, I think, again, that's something people bring into the hospital. I heard about a double lung transplant that saved someone from COVID. I want that or I heard about CPR saving my friend's mom's life. I want that. Um, and so it's just, again, an important thing, I think for me, especially, and for many people to have in mind when we, when we start these conversations that um, this is kind of some of the information out there and um, not good or bad. It's just, that's where we should meet people is wherever they are in this process. Right. It's just because we think a certain way or we, no, think we know a certain way doesn't mean that's where our patients are, right? And this is important to know. Actually, as I was looking at this uh, earlier today, I was thinking about, I don't know if you guys know about this study 
where the authors went and reviewed footage from multiple medical TV shows, right? And they looked at um, outcomes from CPR. And, you know, obviously the neurological recovery rates were outrageously high. So to your point that then that comes with the same perception um, with life-saving intervention. Okay, so you had mentioned with analysis of the sentiment, you also analyze topics, right? So um, let's talk about what you found when you analyze topics. Yeah, so um, actually maybe the next, uh, again, the next table would help just defining all the topics or some of the interesting ones that we found. Um, and again, this was done using machine learning. It essentially groups together tweets that have similar keywords and, uh, and identifies the most, uh, I guess, parsimonious set of tweets um, uh, that belong to a particular group, right? So um, I think the, the one with the highest number of tweets was calls to establish advanced planning, the top one right there. Um, and really th- this one was just people tweeting out saying, hey, go go make uh, you know an advanced uh, director, right? Um, Set, set your DNR status to, or decide on, you know, whatever your advanced care planning status is. So, um, and, and that, that sort of makes, you know, makes sense as to why the sentiment was positive because a lot of people were talking about this in, in a positive way. It's almost like a, um, like a, um, uh, like a campaign type of thing. Um, and, and actually funny enough, that second uh, topic, national healthcare decisions month, was an official campaign that we found. So, um, I, you may be familiar with that, but um, a lot of hospitals participate in either a National Healthcare Decisions Day or a week, and um, and it's it's this organized campaign that happens every single April, um, and essentially the goal is to establish as many um, you know uh, advanced care uh, advanced care plans as as uh, as possible, and sort of encourage that in those conversations in hospitals. So other themes that were, you know, obviously predominant or prominent, I should say, were, you know, surrounding research, people's personal experiences with these topics, and then uh, legal advice and discrimination. So I just wanted to delve into a little bit into these themes, because this is what conversations are about. They're going to educate what we think about these. So let's talk about the discrimination-related tweets. So who, so number one, I guess we'll go the same way. Do you know who the predominant users are? And broadly speaking, what was the sentiment that was associated with tweets that related to discrimination? Yeah, uh, Dr. Wongford, do you want want to maybe define that? Yeah, so discrimination, um, so I'll answer your second question first. Um, The predominant sentiment was negative, meaning it's pretty, negatively perceived in the way that it's presented online. So meaning if I talk about discrimination, I did not talk about it in a favorable way, which is not unsurprising, I think, but the it is by far of all of the sentiments, the most negative as a group. Um, <clears throat> what does that mean? I think that early in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about resource scarcity and with resource scarcity comes fear especially if you're in a group where it feels like the resources would not be allocated to you. Um, And so a lot of this uh, discrimination, I think, is very important. And I think probably under-recognized in the way that we approach patients now, um, that 
perhaps by saying that we're going to have to create these algorithms and exclude certain groups, we have created distrust at a scale that we can't perceive really, but people come in with a little bit of fear or come in with a little bit of skepticism around things like, is the doctor offering me all the things that they have to help me, um, for example. Um, and truly I was a, a little surprised with how big of an impact this was in terms of the negative sentiment, um, because in, in my head, it felt like we were just trying to make ends meet with all the things that we had and things were just going underwater. Um, and also, you know, I think the experience of people who are discriminated against is very strong. And um, because I was in the ER actually just kind of scrambling, I feel like the whole time, um, my focus just felt different. It was like, get it done, like see as many patients that you can get the, everyone on the equipment that you have. And we actually never did run out of resources and other places did. Um, but all that to say, this negative sentiment around discrimination really should be a component of the way that we come into these conversations around end of life, I think, because it is an anchor from which people start to some degree. Um, and then, um, you know, keywords here. So um, disabled, old, those can, can, you know, connotate many different things, many different ages. Um, what is disability? Um, vulnerable. Um, but again, it's it's a sense that for many groups, we are labeling um, as having less access to resources if resources become scarce and resources did. Um, so we took, you know, all the tweets related to these types of things and they were typically spoken about in a negative way. And then on the other side, the flip side of it, uh, some of the most, some of the themes, the most sort of positive sentiment were related to themes where you were essentially sort of advocating for something. So for example, the National Healthcare Decisions Month, which has its own dedicated hashtag year by year, right? Uh, similarly calls to establish uh, your advanced care planning, like Vishal was mentioning. Um, that makes sense. What about things that had like more of a neutral um, sentiment to it, research? That, that was interesting to me, right? Because I thought it would lean one way or the other, right? That, or is it because not to become political on a academic uh, journal club, but does that show us how divergent we were about how we felt about the information coming out or what did you learn from the keywords? Um, I, it seems to me that when people talk about research, they're probably not inserting as much emotion and interpretation into the way that they talk about it, which again, I think is a really important lesson that we take away from the pandemic. It's, it sounds very different to a lay person to hear that there's no evidence that masks work to reduce the spread of COVID-19, um, which in science parlance, as many people know, um, actually just means that we don't have enough research to say for certain. It doesn't mean that it doesn't. So, but if I told my mom, there's no evidence to suggest masks work, she would hear masks don't work. Um, and so I, I think um, the point I'm making is that if we use really, really neutral language all the time around research, it may not actually have the impact that we hope it does. We hope that we do research so that people change behaviors. We do research so that people have better outcomes. But if we talk so neutrally about it, perhaps we're not 
reaching the emotion center of people that engages them in, oh, cool, there's this new finding and there's new thing. Um, and oh, so, but, but wait. Yeah. Is that but wait, right? Is that there's this new cool finding, but wait. And then you don't yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. I think it's the same with legal advice. It's a balance because like this new study on communication tool for engaging patients, da, 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 it's so neutral. Instead of saying like cool new communication tool improves communication or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but we're trained to be neutral. And I think that's good in many cases, um, it's just how you use it. But that's my hypothesis on why research is so central here on the way that it's talked about. Um, and just to hone in a little bit more, um, and if you don't have this information on hand, I get it. But for each of these major topics, do you know which user groups tended to be the most heavy users for each of the topics? Yeah, uh, I don't have it off of my head, but if you go to table, I think, uh, let's see up here that, that that one right there yeah so um so here what we did is we we grouped the major uh uh user types uh on the x and then on the y we have the, the same topics and so if we go to the interesting ones i guess so um we can start with um we can really yeah we can start with uh calls for action really and so uh first maybe we can look at the tweets before we look at the retweets and it looks like um let me also define here that that little subscript A. There's no footnote, but the subscript A means that um, that particular user type talked about that topic uh, significantly more than uh, than was expected. While the B means it was significantly less than expected. Okay. Um, and then without a footnote, there's there's it's just uh, there's no difference really. So organizations uh, tended to uh, talk about calls for action more than other users. Um, maybe this goes in hand with, with the, um, the National Healthcare Decisions Month, right? That, that one also had, had an A there because it's really a, a campaign and organizations may be, um, maybe you know, initiating and spreading the messaging around that campaign. Um, then if you look at, um, for example, if you look at personal experiences, you know, organizations didn't really mention personal experiences. That kind of makes sense. Influencers didn't really. Um, of course, individuals did, and even um, clinicians did, right? These are the people that were talking about personal experiences because they are like the individuals that experience them, right? Um, and then the, the next one, I think discrimination is, is important to talk about. It looks like uh, everybody except for individuals, right? Individuals are the ones that talked about discrimination more than anyone else. So um, while, while organizations maybe retweeted things about discrimination and clinicians may have retweeted things about discrimination, they weren't likely to make a, a unique post about them. Um, and maybe this just, again, points to the fact that we aren't, you know, clinicians aren't really trained to talk about discrimination about advanced care planning. Um, but individuals may be the ones that are experiencing these sentiments or um, just having these thoughts. And that's why they're likely to talk about it. So, yeah, no, I think that that's a pretty good summary. Um, as we start heading towards the, you know, sort of closes journal club, I think what I would love our readers to do is look at this table and think about the different facets, right? So for example, I'll just highlight, for example, the discrimination part of it. So who 
talks uniquely most about discrimination here, as is evident, sounds like it's individuals. So I'm assuming it's either affected people, affected affected practitioners, right? But then who amplifies, I'm just going to use amplifies for retweets, is organizations are willing to amplify and uh, so are clinicians. So I, what I couldn't parse out here is, is it, is it these entities not being willing to engage in this nuanced conversation? Because Twitter is not exactly easy to have their conversation on within constraint of characteristics, characters. Or is it willingness and unwillingness sort of question? Or is it them just listening and saying, okay, we see you, you know, let us do what we can to help you sort of spread your word out, right? Because you also see these... Um, uh, the influencers are not engaging in either of that, uh, where the influencers seem to be primarily out there uh, talking about research or uh, promoting stuff about precautions, right? So I don't know if it's them giving space, is it not being able to engage? I, so I think clearly you guys have also, in doing this, identified that we have to understand these sort of nitty-gritties of this going forward right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, and I think, you know, a, a big part of that is it, it's, it's, it is part of one of our conclusions, although influencers do have the potential power to do so, right, to, to spread this important information, they, they really didn't um, spread information about discrimination. Um, and one, one thing I didn't uh, bring up, but um, the very far right of this table, you have the, um, you have the retweet to tweet ratio, RT colon T, um, and, and that has been used in other studies as a potential, you know, marker for engagement, right? For every one tweet made, how many are actually reposted? Um, and the topic with the most, you know, the, the highest ratio is personal experiences. So that shows that people are really connecting to these personal experiences. And then discrimination is is second, uh, second, or I think it's second. Yeah, it's tied with no. Yeah, it is. It's tied with research actually. So. Um, um, for a second, I would say, um, yeah, Dr. Wallingford, we're going to say something. I was just going to say that uh, personal experiences, I think, um, in some ways are powerful because they're story. Um, the other stuff is concept or a mix, probably. And so, you know, framing things as stories clearly hasn't influenced, it seems, in the way that people want to share them. Um, <clears throat> and I think that runs in some ways counter to our tendency in medicine to try to keep things as um, scientific and neutral as possible, like I said, but then it also has an impact in how widely it gets spread. So if we could frame, here's some research and here's a story related to it, like, hey, there's this new drug and for the first time in my career, we've been able to save this patient and here's a picture, for example, that might be better than, you know, drug A is, significantly superior to drug B. Um, and so it could also alter the way that we try to share information if we're doing it on a platform where there's something to retweet. Um, and discrimination, my guess too, is, is more story in a way um, that people may talk about it conceptually, but also in the way that it affected them or the way it affected their family. And so perhaps is a reason why it got shared more. Um, and I, I wonder too, with research is just 
because researchers are experts in something, people don't want to try to summarize the research. So it's easier to hit retweet because it's it's like already written by an expert and coming from that expert as a retweet seems more impactful than if I just say something um, not from the mouth of the researcher who produced that uh, insight. Interesting. All right, so uh, to summarize where we have come so far, uh, we took conversations off of Twitter uh, tweets to uh, see which ones pertain to life-saving interventions and advanced care planning. So try to understand who are the users having those conversations and we broadly understand that there's more conversations in relationship to life-saving interventions than uh, advanced care planning. And then broadly the sentiment was more positive as it pertained to life-saving interventions. And then we briefly discussed the themes and sort of who engaged with these themes and what we can potentially make out of these. So all helpful information. In all of this, what did you guys identify as the shortcomings in either the methodology or uh, how much we can push the interpretation? Yeah, you know, so this is a, a pretty non-traditional study, I would say. And so um, there are definitely shortcomings to the methods here. So, um, you know, using Twitter um, as a source for all this data, while we had a lot of tweets, um, it's not completely generalizable because not everybody uses Twitter. Um, even of the users that have Twitter accounts, not everybody actively tweets and then not everybody is going to be vocal enough to tweet about some sensitive topic. So we may not catch those people. Um, and then, you know, a, a systemic sort of limitation is that we only analyze English tweets. Um, there are people in other countries that don't speak English and don't tweet in English. So we didn't get catch those. Um, and, you know, there are also other countries with limited resources that may not have as much access to internet or, or Twitter, I guess. Um, and we probably didn't catch as many of those people in those third world countries. Um, and we were actually talking about this. Those, those individuals may be um, the ones that we're actually trying to reach or trying to educate about advanced care planning the most. Um, and, and we weren't able, really able to sort of detect how they talk about these things. Um, yeah, I think that was interesting that low and middle income countries, right? Um, there was not as much conversations about advanced care planning. And is it because is that's just not a topic that's generally broached upon versus it's, it's talked about in a different manner? Uh, would you know, It's hard to parse that out, I would say. Yeah. Um, okay, so we take all of this, all the information that you've shared with us, um, understanding the sort of caveats, um, which, you know, every study has. So if now uh, our listeners who are researchers, clinicians, they have to take anything from this, what, what, what should that be? Um, <clears throat> so one thing that I took from this is that influencers have a dis proportionate share voice on Twitter, which I think we kind of know generally, but it is interesting that even in advanced care planning and life-sustaining treatments, which are niche, niche topics um, for many, I think, of our influencers, uh, they also have a disproportionate share of voice. And so I wonder how we can engage <clears throat> influencers in creating content or partnership to really improve how this conversation happens at a bigger scale, because when we try to reach through clinicians 
individuals and organizations, you can see that like their collective bars were almost like invisible compared to the bar that um, showed the number of eyeballs that influencers hit. Um, and so I think for future pandemics, but also for important movements in general, I think it's just important for the scientific community to acknowledge that perhaps influencers would be helpful partners um, when thoughtfully partnered with. Um, and I think the second piece that I take away from this is, again, meeting people where they are in their own conversations. Um, just asking, you know, what have you heard about advanced care planning? Did you ever talk about discrimination? Um, opening that door just a little bit to acknowledge and open the space for people to talk about, yeah, I did. I was very worried because my mom is in X group or whatever, can help build trust, meet people where they are and help with this process of um, really talking about how people want their values to really meet their medical care that they receive. Um, so there's, I think, like a larger movement type thing. And then like, what am I going to do today? Um, I might ask one more question that I wouldn't have before we did this. I agree. And I think just there's so much data and so much conversations that, ha that are happening there. And they can help us understand priorities. I, I think that is huge. Uh, so I appreciate all the work that you guys have done both Vishal and Dr. Wallingford and your willingness to take time and share with us. I agree it's a non-traditional study, uh, but uh, with the sort of increasing uptake of social media and engagement by actually all stakeholders during the pandemic, as other studies have shown, I think it's super important that we do sort of listen to these and try to, um, you know, sort of inform our practice or our uh, bedside approach here. Um, so I appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. And if you guys have any questions out of the listeners, uh, feel free to reach out. I'm sure um, Michelle and Dr. Wallingford would be uh, more than happy to expound more on this and all the best. Continue doing your good work, guys, and uh, take care. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having us. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye.